Hey everybody, welcome to another week of the No Film School podcast for May 23rd, 2019. This is tech writer Charles Hain. I'm editor-in-chief George Edelman. We're here to talk about all the news you might have missed out on while you're out there making movies. We're going to talk for the last time about Game of Thrones. We're going to cover a little bit about the ongoing situation between the agents and the writers. We're going to talk about a new adaptation of everybody's favorite tool, the vape. All that tech news and Ask No Film School this week, May 23rd, on the No Film School podcast. For all of you who are sick of hearing about Game of Thrones, this is probably going to be our last time we talk about Game of Thrones for at least a little while until we do a nostalgia post about Game of Thrones in August or something. Although I'm going to I'm going to say it right now. I'm going to call the end of Game of Thrones the end of peak TV. I had much had the same thought. In fact, earlier in the season, I had thought this is the end of the water cooler show. Yeah. As we know it. Oh, my God. There is probably better TV being made right now than Game of Thrones. And I'm not saying that we're at the end of, like, TV being good. There's amazing stuff. BoJack Horseman is so good. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is amazing. Like, there's so much good stuff getting made, and good stuff's going to happen. But what's so oh, funny and is... I would also say as audiences get more niche and more fractured yep. and there's more platforms, you're going to find things that you specifically love or anybody is that's, you know, yep. so more targeted to your tastes. And, th and there's no question that uh, the idea of broad appeal as it fades. Yep. But what we lose with that, as you were saying... Even the thing, even my favorites of the last two years, Atlanta, I keep mentioning Atlanta to people and people are like, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to watch that, which is like insane to me. And that's what I'm defining as peak TV, that period from The Sopranos through Game of Thrones where television was like very, very good and something where there was a small enough pool of television being made that reasonably you could assume most people you had a conversation with had seen it and were talking about it and willing to engage with it. And it's fun because, you know, there's not that many things that people engage with commonly anymore. And one of the beauties of TV versus, say, politics is I can have deep arguments with my friends about TV and stay friends. I, I mean, the way the season ended, just jumping into the actual content of the series, the way people were wrapped up into it, you could, you know, friendships might end. Things, people might, things get, might get emotional. I got to say this, and I'm going to say this as like the vast minority. I kind of liked the last season. I don't understand why everybody hated it so much. I felt like it wrapped up a lot of threads in a really pleasing way. Um, I felt like it was rushed and should have been two 10-episode seasons and not one five-episode season. And I can forgive it for being rushed because I understand, like, eight years is a long time to commit to any story. Um, and I don't know that I've lost any friends about th that, even though, as far as I can tell, everyone disagrees with me. It felt like from a... Story standpoint, that last episode I commented to someone, it was held together with bubblegum duct tape and gorgeous cinematography because yeah. it was just like from a story perspective, it was rushed. A lot of beats seemed skipped. A lot of character things seemed confusing. I think I'm just echoing a sort of common complaints, but from a technical standpoint, uh, from a production standpoint, that show truly expanded the scope of what television is. We had posts about um, people complaining about factory settings on their TVs, essentially, um, because the show wasn't the show was it's a, it's a movies for TV. Literally, it went beyond um, the medium. And I think that it's you can appreciate it on that level. 
But I mean, I would actually say that like emotionally, I felt like the emotional arc of like the compromise of Jon Snow getting ha- being forced to take the black again felt like a nice callback to other almost kings having taken the black earlier and, you know, younger Jon Snow having, having wanted that and then an older Jon Snow being forced into a compromised position where they're given that. I feel like if there was more time to motivate other things, a couple of the big things did pay off for me. It was the speed mm. that was the problem, not necessarily the resolution. I felt very satisfied by that end point for almost almost every character. There's some I would say I was not satisfied by. But Yeah, Grey Worm should have been more pissed off. Like <laughs> and just the, the fact the, that Grey Worm didn't murder him is kind of a huge <laughs> Yeah, they just kind of left certain things like I think like what happened exactly you you try to imagine like okay after Jon Snow does that and he's standing there who finds him why do they put him in a jail why do they you know there's a lot of things you have to ask how did Tyrion know where they would be in the basements like yeah how did he know they didn't make it out of the basement like there were a lot of like basic logistical stuff where I was like George R. R. Martin would have written four scenes getting us there. And, and by the time we got to this thing we would have been like oh okay and I think and I feel that- like it would just speed was the issue in the first four seasons of the show, it took people a long time to get places. And it was part of the appeal of the show was that these were characters in this sort of medieval world traveling long distances and getting from the North, say, to King's Landing meant this epic journey. And by season eight, people are doing it from one scene to the next, literally. <laughs> You'd have people like, there's yeah. a, the, the pilot sets up this idea. It's like, we're going south. We may not come back. <laughs> like, And by the last episode, it's like, hey, uh, can you be down in King's Landing later today? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'll be there in the next scene. So, I mean, obviously, technically, I really enjoyed it, but I also feel like story beats were there. It was character motivations that were a problem. Like, you're actively wondering, like, why and how these two people are walking in this place. And it was actually an interesting episode because they also directed it. And, you know, one of those things you're you're always thinking about as a director is, like, where is this character coming from and where are they going to next? And, like, why have they decided to walk into this room is always, like, a relevant thing. In terms of the directing of the episode, uh, yeah, so showrunners Benioff and Weiss directed the episode. They also wrote it. There was an extremely weird pacing thing to me where, so Jon Snow's walking down the street in King's Landing. He comes across with Sir Davos, uh, Grey Worm, who's got some hostages, and then Grey Worm's going to execute them. They have a whole little thing, and then Davos says, go talk to the Queen, John." So Jon sort of walks away from the scene, and next thing we know, he's arriving at this big sort of like triumph of the will style (laughs) fascist uh, speech from the Queen. And he wants to go talk to talk to her, and Grey Worm's there. I had the same and thing I, where I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> How did the script supervisor not call them out on that? How did the script supervisor thought, not be like, did he have a portal? Again, going back to, like, George R. R. Martin versus the show, there's been a lot of conversation about, like, the way in which Westeros is a world that, like, sort of stopped at a moment in technology and sort of coasted. And in some ways, you can think about dragons as technology, like dragons as being a nuclear weapon, if you think about it. Like, in a lot of ways, the Targaryens have this power because of a technical advantage. And if you think you reference Triumph of the Will, obviously her giving that speech at the top of the stairs to all of the Unsullied is very much a Triumph of the Will moment. She's given a lot of speeches to crowds. And this was the first time I was sitting there thinking, how are they all hearing you? Because of the, well, and because of the Triumph of the Will references, like, one of the things that enabled Triumph of the Will to happen is 
audio technology that could amplify so Hitler could give a speech and 20,000 people could listen simultaneously wasn't possible in the 1850s or medieval times, right? The really fascinating thing to me coming out of it was, so does the dragon understand symbolism? And like, like, what does the dragon understand of the world around him? Because he seems to be quite intelligent in an interest in a in a unique way when he decides to turn on the throne which is a symbol of power and a symbol of her uh fall it's a nuanced read i mean it's like an english major's read it's It's like did you go to vassar (laughs) did you do it like it was like very i was like drogon had a uh drogon had a liberal arts education because i mean maybe i'm wrong but i'd sort of thought of the dragons as being relatively like equivalent to somewhere between a dog and a horse in terms of intelligence no, yes, granted, me too. that doesn't actually make any sense because they're massive creatures and their brain is probably <laughs> right. bigger than a whole human body. So maybe they are much smarter, but they haven't developed language. And, you know, Noam Chomsky <laughs> would argue that language is a part of reflective intelligence, right? So you're watching this thing and you're like, but if you would, George R. R. Martin, I suspect if we'd had two seasons, we would have had little beats along the way. Other than the weird scene watching um, Danny and John do it where the dragons were watching. I think we needed something earlier. I don't know what that would have been. Or like four different things really establishing like, oh, Drogon understands that it's actually the system of power and the pursuit of the throne that killed Danny, not Jon Snow. I tell you what, if one of our fans or readers goes out there and edits together every Drogon appearance in the show and finds evidence of an inner life in those appearances, we will totally do an article (laughs) running that video. I will say, before we wrap up Game of Thrones, that I was extremely satisfied just to see Jon Snow reunite with his dog, pet him, put a little money into that. Uh, The pilot, they discover the direwolves. The direwolves are incredibly symbolic. To the Starks, when John first gets Ghost and he holds up the little white puppy, and then the last one of the last shots is John petting him. I think that it was so hard for fans to accept that John said goodbye with just like a look. But I would not be entirely surprised if some of that scene was redone after fan reaction last week. Totally. <laughs> um, yes. If there was yes. some sort of like, actually, we need more John Ghost interaction. I want to wrap up Game of Thrones with this, which is something that I haven't actually seen talked about anywhere. Uh, and I haven't seen any memes, but it's actually one of the most, I don't know if punk rock is the right term, but like in addition to melting the Iron Throne, the next king is in a wheelchair. And like, I don't know, that's like just incredibly punk rock in terms of the symbolism of the throne and like mm. Bran in a wheelchair as a like wielder of power. It's symbolic in a lot of like really interesting ways in terms of being differently abled, but also in terms of an iron throne, which is locked in one place and has no ability to move. And it's still a chair. It's still a throne, but it's a throne that has flexibility and can move around and is not locked firmly in one place. I felt like there was a lot of great stuff there. And I also thought it was really interesting that like way back in season one, Tyrion gave the first designs for the original uh, saddle that Bran sort of started with before the wheelchair. And so like this whole Tyrion brand thing has been set up for so long and coming for so long. I felt like there was, there's something really interesting that I can't articulate there that I think is kind of like pleasantly punk rock. Bran had sort of become something of a plot black hole over the course of the show. You know, Bran said he didn't want to be Lord of Winterfell, but then he was very willing to take over King of Everything. There's a lot of, look, maybe they needed more time. I don't know. But to your point about Bran and the the landing, the ending spot, 
I think that the that George R. R. Martin always had this clear idea about the people who were a little bit on the fringe. So people like John, who is a bastard, or Arya, who is a tomboy, or Bran, who became differently abled. And was uh, the youngest not, son. Like never, no one expected anything. He had two older brothers. Right. And and then characters like um, Jamie yeah. or... Uh, or Rob Stark, traditional leading men, uh, king type guys. He has a clear idea about aristocracy and class and the ruling class and the people and a, sort of a meek shall inherit the earth almost vibe to the end of the show, which is very cool in terms of messaging, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that you do articulate that point very well. And I would agree. It was kind of, you know, watching Tyrion again and uh, Brienne, the female knight, and like, you know, a group of people who were, or uh, Davos, I think the whole idea with Davos was always that he was from the lower class. So there was a, there's a cool reading of the whole show in how that all worked. Oh, interesting question from a, from a filmmaking standpoint. So I talked to a, an attorney who works at a major studio and we were talking about how characters like actors and actresses who played Jamie and Cersei Lannister had the order for every episode. So they got paid the full amount for every episode. So even though they, they die, spoiler alert, sorry, in season, in episode five, they do, they are credit billed in episode six and they do appear in episode six, right? Mm -hmm. So did they get their full rate? Which I think is half a million dollars an episode. I mean, presumably yes. To just lie there or just be faces. Interesting. Well, but on the flip side, if you think about the way they shoot these shows with yes, I yes block shooting and it's sprawling and parts of episodes are being shot out of order and you know and in terms of the schedule of the amount of time it took out of the rest of their career, I'm uh, more than okay with them having getting paid for this season of work, even though oh, Cersei made oh, really yes, good money to hang out in a dress and look out a window drinking wine. <laughs> All right, up next, we have some more news in the real-life Game of Thrones, right? As close as we're going to get in the film industry right now. A quick refresher, the agents and the writers are having a bit of a spat. It is not quite... I would actually say in this case, the agents are a little bit like the Lannisters, and maybe the writers could be the North. But a little bit of backstory. If you haven't been following the story, you should. If you work in the film industry, it's really important. Writers write the things that we watch. Agents sell those things and take a percentage. And it has been a, a, a good working system for a century. It is a great system because what it, it enables to happen is you're a writer and you want to meet with a studio or a network and have a friendly conversation about creative stuff. And you don't want to get into an argument about money because that can sometimes change things. So you want someone else to have those arguments about money. And you kind of want that someone else to have arguments about money or conversations, negotiations, not always arguments, who understands money, who knows what going rates are, who understands that like, oh, hey, this person got this on this show, this person got this on this show, I'm getting lowballed. You want someone to have that specialized knowledge in the film industry that's been agents and they take a percentage cut in exchange for having that specialized knowledge and negotiating on behalf of their clients. And it's a good system and it's a system that works and is super exciting. In the 80s, and maybe even the 70s, but it really kicked off in the 80s, the system changed in this weird way in that agencies started packaging projects. They started saying, well, hey, I've got this writer, and I've got this actor, and I've got this director, and if I put the three of them together and I present it to a network or a studio, I'll get paid a packaging fee for the packaging work, and I won't take a cut of 
any of the people I'm representing. The problem with this is that it creates this weird incentive where the agency is no longer as incentivized to get every person they're packaging as much money. They're incentivized to get the biggest packaging fee, which isn't quite the perfect incentive in terms of economic incentives for making sure that they're negotiating with like absolute aggressiveness to make sure that their writers and directors and actors are getting the most money possible. And the people this has hurt the most has been the writers. The craziest thing about it is that it's been going on for so long. It's finally come to a head. And I think it's a brave, it's a brave new world if, it, if things flip. So the writers all got together and said, we don't want packaging anymore. We want you to represent us for a percentage of our sale so that you're incentivized to get the biggest sale possible so your percentage is the best. And that's what we want. And the agents said no. And so the writers uh, about a month ago said, all right, writers, everybody fire your agents. And uh, they're working on some other things like a script bank and working on figuring out other methods of hiring and all that stuff. But so also far, important to point out that writers still have lawyers. They can still yes. have managers and the manager writer yes. relationship. So when I was uh, writing, I was briefly covered. I was briefly repped by an agent and a manager. And you know pretty fast when you're in those situations that your agent's responsibility is to help you. You know, you managers will help you take a meeting. Agents will help you take a meeting. But uh, an agent's more working with you on the sales side, like the actually getting money side of things. And a manager is like a corner man who's helping you develop, helping you pick the right projects, reading everything you write, looking at drafts. Like they're really in the trenches with you. And you can also always have a lawyer, and a lot of writers do at some point, um, who also goes over your contracts, goes over your... So there's, you know, a writer can continue their work without an agent. And um, agents are allowed in California to negotiate for you. That is allowed. Um, and managers aren't traditionally, but you can have a manager who is a lawyer. I know many managers who have law degrees and when they've passed the California bar, they can negotiate for you. Look, Agents serve an incredibly valuable function in the film industry. The writers are not saying they want rid of those agents. The writers are saying, can we please have agents incentivized in our best interest? And the news about this today, or this week, is that one of the agencies is actually broken with the ATA, the Association of Talent Agencies, and one of the agencies is going to work with the WGA on no packaging. Now, it is not one of the big, massive agencies. It's not CAA or The Dime or... Um, WME, it's The Verve, which is a smaller agency. They're newer. They're mostly focused on directing and writing. I actually think they're only entirely focused on directors and writers. I don't think they rep actors. Um, yeah, so the packaging big... is probably not even as much of their business. As soon as it was, hey, The Verve broke with the ATA, the following line was, well, it's The Verve. So, you know, it's, it's a sign, but uh, it's not, like you said, the big one. So the big agencies in town or in the world because it's more than just around here. CAA, I think, still stands as like the Death Star, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and uh, WME, um, William Morris Endeavor. Um, ICM is still pretty significant, right? Yeah, UTA, um, Paradigm. UTA, Paradigm is on the, yeah, is up there. So there's a lot of, Gersh is a big one. Yeah. There's a lot of big name agencies, but I think they there's, you know, those... If a CAA or a UTA did this, it would be, uh, I hate to use the phrase, but a game changer. I was just excited to see anyone break. 
I think it is hopeful that we will see some more coming along. Our next story this week, a microfogger for $100 so that you can fog your six. So first off, everybody knows fog is one of the like magic tricks of cinematography, right? Yes, there are like post plugins you can do for fog, but a post plugin for fog is going to put the same amount of fog on every part of the image. Your character and the background get the same amount of fog, so it's not as good. You fog a set, your character is a little sharper, your background is a little foggier because of the layers between them. Like you see it in 1980s and 90s music videos, but you also see it in like every noir film, every thriller. You want that shaft of light going through a room, you need a little fog to do it. Fog is something that we all do. And usually what we do is we get some sort of like little music video hazer that's wall pluggable for fog. Well, someone's just come out with something called a micro fogger. It's a hundred bucks and it will allows you to have like a little pack uh pocket battery powered fogger for fogging small spaces as you need them. It's also really neat because you can hold it in your hand and you can do very sort of detailed, you're doing a little insert shot and you want a little whiff of smoke right coming up behind it. You can do all sorts of really fine controlled stuff with this. It's also pretty fun, and this was pointed out by one of the commenters, that <laughs> it's basically just a jewel. Like it is more or less just a vape. So it is a vape that instead of using vape juice, you're using fog juice that is very specifically designed purpose-built for filmmaking and for using it in photography and image creation. So that is super cool. Yeah, I think one of the cool things, like you talked about the use of fog, I think beyond the obvious, you know, ooh, it's like a smoky, you know, music video thing. People, you know, diffusion is one of the ways you change your image quality and the way in the atmosphere and the more elements in your atmosphere, like if you're shooting on a very smoggy or foggy day outside, then your your depth of field changes. The what's in what's in yeah. focus changes. What's so it's a it's a powerful tool for controlling the result of your image in camera. As things get smaller, it seems like technology continues to get more mobile and small as we go. Yeah. I mean at this point with the DJI Mavic 2 one of the things is you should probably just keep a drone in your bag most of the time, which is like an insane thing to think 10 years ago. <laughs> Every but that's the perfect pivot to tech news. Um, our top tech news story this week, DJI coming for GoPro. So if everybody remembers, about two years ago, there's this company, GoPro. Some of you might have heard of it. Uh, they used to be really big. Um, they've had a rough couple of years, but they're still making cameras. They make this little action camera called The Hero, it's super cool. Uh, it's another one of those things that everybody sort of has in their bag. The example I always use is like, you know, like every AC I know has one or two in their bag because you never know when you're gonna wanna like rig one up to the wall so an actor can crash into it or like stick one under the pool or in an aquarium or whatever. It's like a good little waterproof fun camera to have around. So two years ago, GoPro was trying to expand their market and they were like, you know, what is a big area is the sky. So we're gonna make drones that like our GoPro goes into, it's going to be called the Karma, which is like a name that's asking for trouble. And uh, <laughs> because when you find out what happens, you wonder what they'd karmically done to deserve it. So they made this drone, the Karma, and unfortunately it fell out of the sky, which is not something you want drones to do. There's this terrifying video of one like falling out of the sky and almost hitting somebody. It's like not exciting. It was a big problem. In fact, it took them like a year to get back into profitability. They just had their first profitable quarter again. Um, so they're focusing again just on action cameras. The, the Hero 7 Black is like their current top of the line camera and it's doing really well for them and it's exciting and it's 400 bucks and people love it. Now, 
Sky is very dominated by DJI. And I'm not saying that DJI was seeking revenge. I think this is just a good business move on their part. I don't see any ill will here. But GoPro made a move on the Sky and then pulled out. DJI, owner of the Sky and land with their own stabilizers, just came out with the Osmo Action, which is an action camera. So they are now moving on GoPro's turf. I think it's a smart business move. I don't think it's malicious, but it is kind of like a little bit karmic, if you will, for GoPro. Mm. Um, it is, it basically spec for spec matches the Hero 7 Black. 4K, 60, image stabilization internally, all sorts of crazy good stuff. And it fits in all of your Hero 7 Black accessories. So if you're already in the GoPro system and you have the bike mount and you have the dog mount and you have the surfboard mount, super exciting. On top of that, it's 50 bucks cheaper, starting price, 350. And it has what I think of as a killer feature. And it's one of those great killer features that was designed for other people, but filmmakers are going to love. And that killer feature is the front-facing screen. So, clearly this is designed for selfies. But super useful for filmmakers, because one of the most annoying parts about a GoPro is framing them up when you rig them places. I've worked on so many shoots where we're like, all right, we're getting this person diving into water. We'll get it from the outside on a red, but let's just put a GoPro or two on the side of the pool, and we'll get them under the water coming in. It's really hard to do that because when you're rigging it to the side of something and the screen's on the back, you can't see it. And yeah, you can hook up to it wirelessly, but I'm not going to be down underwater with an iPad. Like, it's just <laughs> not a convenient way to work. The front-facing screen that just allows you to, like, frame and see what the hell you are doing when you are rigging it places will be a huge bonus for filmmakers. So I, yeah, I talk about this. You know oh, go ahead. It, re it reminds me of when I, you know, Steven Soderbergh speaking about using the iPhone to shoot High Flying Bird and how he loved putting it. He was like, I can put it on the wall. And I was thinking as soon as he said that, like, yeah, you can frame it up and you can look at it through yep. the, you know, <laughs> through the screen. Like, I don't know if that's how he did it, obviously. He wasn't underwater, so he could have had it running to a monitor. But my point is just that ability is just so cool. All right. And up next... We have our Ask No Film School. So this week, Ask No Film School actually came in from ask at nofilmschool.com. So you can always ask there. You can also hit us up on Twitter or on the No Film School boards. So this one is Rafael Duque Matos asks, I saw a scene in Avengers and I saw a BTS shot where I could see the monitor and the monitor clearly had a readout saying they were shooting 48 frames. But the scene in the movie has no slow-mo in it. Why were they shooting 48 frames on that scene if there wasn't any slow-mo? So this is a really great question. We wanted to answer it. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why they might have been shooting 48 frames on that scene in particular, even though no slow-mo ended up in the final cut. I don't believe that Avengers was released in 48 frames. I believe it was a normal production. So here's what I think was probably going on. A lot of people have started shooting slow-mo for everything when they do this digitally, which means they want the freedom to go slow-mo and post whenever they feel like it. And especially now that we had it digitally, there's so many opportunities to just ramp into slow-mo. And, you know, someone might say a really cool line and then you want to ramp into slow-mo as they whip their head around and their hair bounces or something. Like, that happens a lot. So you're seeing this a lot in music videos, but you're also seeing it in some narrative projects. You're seeing it a lot in action where they're shooting whole sequences where everything is 48 frames, knowing at the end that they are planning on finishing 24, releasing 24, because the only thing it really costs them is hard drive space and assistant editor time. And those are things they can throw money at and they want to preserve as much flexibility in post-production as possible. But the trick to remember when you do this, if you guys are going to go do this yourself, which a lot of people do, the trick to remember is that we're still used to 180 degree shutter at 24 frames per second. 
So when you switch to 48 frames per second, you probably want to switch to a 360 degree shutter. You should do some testing for yourself to be sure, but that lets you shoot 48 frames a second, but expose for 1 48th of a second. So if you drop every other frame to get back to 24 frames a second, it looks normal. If you keep your 180 degree shutter, what's gonna happen is you're only gonna be open for 1 96th of a second. And in some situations that can look stuttery when playing back at 24 frames per second. Oh, I can tell some horror stories from productions that came into my post house and did that wrong and like were melting down with how much they hated the way it looked because they hadn't set it right and how much work we had to do in post to fix it and some tricks to try and fix it. I just wrote down, I will do that post. Yeah. All right, everybody, this has been another week of the No Film School podcast. If you are interested in more of this kind of stuff, you can check out the nofilmschool.com where there's all of these articles and more. If you're interested in just the tech news, I have a specific tech news podcast called The Week in Film Tech. You can always check that out. It's just tech nerdery and nothing else. Um, you can also always find me on Twitter at Charles Hain. And me at George Edelman. No Film School is at No Film School. Follow us, like us, read us. Engage with us on the boards, ask us Email questions, us. <laughs> and uh, we will see everybody next week, May 30th, for the first Game of Thrones free episode of the No Film School podcast in a little while. Thanks a lot. Have fun making movies.